Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 5th, 2010. day in the saddle today. Okay, this story, I don't know if it's going to make the cut today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Don't be listening to folks who tell you things about God that you cannot see clearly in God's Word. One of the things we work from here is this idea that in order for something to be considered sound biblical doctrine, it has to be clearly taught in God's Word, the doctrine of the Trinity, our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, law and gospel. These are all clearly taught in God's Word, and they're not taught in a way where somebody has to pull out, you know, secret peeping stones, you know, the urm and thumb them and hold them up, to, you know, put them in a hat and stick them over your eyes and go, mm, okay, God's, I'm seeing the secrets in God's words now, mm, and oh, I found that there they are. No, it's, it's a s- simple matter of grammar and words. There are no secrets in the Bible, none. If there were secrets in the Bible, then, uh, well, <laughs> How could it be a secret because people have had the Bible for thousands of years? Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So the idea is is that if somebody's handling God's word correctly, you should be able to see the assertions that they're making clearly asserted by God's word itself. Uh, God doesn't need people making assertions up about what it is that he wants us to know about him, what what he's done for us, any of that stuff. That's... God has clearly already revealed that, and the job of the preacher is to proclaim the oracles of God that are given in God's word clearly and coherently, and you know, basically proclaim them for people to hear and understand what God has said and spoken and what he means. And if somebody deviates from the script, that would be the Bible, and starts making up assertions about God or just ripping things out of context and making God's word say things that don't say, that person ain't teaching you sound biblical doctrine. It's just not possible. 
You know, so, you know, pastors are called to proclaim sound biblical doctrine. That means you preach what the book actually clearly says in context. Yeah, the reason I'm saying all of this is because I know what's coming in the sermon review today. And by the way, this we're going to be doing part two today and part three tomorrow. This is the first time we've done this where we're going to take apart uh, most of a sermon series. Now, this is a four-part sermon series. We're not going to do part four. But I am going to review part two of uh, David Hughes's uh, Domination series today, and I'll be reviewing part three tomorrow. Tomorrow will be a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith, not a, a Friday light and that's because I was out of studio yesterday. Yesterday I was out of the studio and uh, preparing for uh, a lecture that I gave on biblical authority. In fact, I presented yesterday at uh, Harbor Shores Church in Noblesville, Indiana, and uh, the topic was the authority of God's Word, and I, I got to thank you all, for those of you who showed up, who came and turned out and and, and, uh, and came you know to hear me lecture. Um, I, again, I cannot thank you enough for showing up. And for your generosity as well. In fact, we had a, several people from out of town. We had some folks from Fort Wayne drive in uh, to the event, and there was a gal who was who was there from Chicago, and uh, and boy, she's got a, had a chance to talk to her afterwards, and uh, she is no slouch too biblically. I mean, she she understands contemplative mysticism and prayer, and uh, and is involved in a Bible study fellowship, and uh, and you know, doing her job. To uh, to soundly proclaim the gospel and uh, and sound doctrine in the uh, spheres that she runs into, and so it was a it was a wonderful opportunity to meet you all, and uh, and thank you all for coming out. I will be hopefully taking the audio from that event and uh, making it available. I'll probably use it on a program in the near future here at Fighting for the Faith. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. But uh, anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, what we're doing on the program today. Um, yesterday, we uh, man, the uh, Proposition 8 was overturned by a U.S. district judge yesterday. Of course, this is obviously going to work its way all the way to the Supreme Court. You could just see this one coming. But uh, Albert Mueller, I think, has probably given one of the best, um, has given probably a good biblical take on this. So we're going to take a look at Albert Mueller's uh, take on that decision yesterday uh, regarding Proposition 8. And then um, it, it kind of, a, I think, is a good counterpoint to all of this is there's a um, story also in the Christian Post by Lillian Kwan uh, entitled, Outed Pastor Says No to Homosexuality and Follows Jesus. And I think this is a great counter uh, counterpoint to it because there's a Lutheran pastor in Minneapolis who struggles with same-sex attraction, and he recognizes that this is sinful. And uh, he's been working through it, and a gay magazine outed him. And um, I I just want to show you the difference. Um, I I wanted you to see what happens with somebody who correctly struggles with their sin in light of the gospel. And I think this, uh, this really gives a fine example of it. And then um in <clears throat> the um son of Francis Schaefer, the great Francis Schaefer, his name is Frank Schaefer. And uh, the best <laughs> way I could put it is this uh Frank Schaefer ain't his dad. He's like his dad's polar opposite. His dad was brilliant, he ain't. His dad was a defender of the Christian faith. 
Frank Schaefer is a mocker of the Christian faith, and it's really, really sad to see what uh, Frank Schaefer has become. And uh, he's got an op-ed piece at the Huffington Post entitled, Maybe God Rejects the Bible. Oh, man. Yeah, God rejects his own word. I don't think so, Frank, but we'll be reading your article and uh, in opining there. And then if we have, uh, if we have time uh, today, we'll get to this uh, con- Calling for Consexualization Part 3 uh, by Ed Stetzer, which uh, appeared in today's edition of the Christian Post. Uh, but before we get to any of that, um, um, I've got uh, news uh, from Patricia King. I mean, she's got a brand new video that just went up. And, uh, and, you know, she, she apparently hears from God, God talks to her and she gets visions and, and, you know, images in her mind that she passes along on her XP media channel. And, uh, so before we dive into the program proper, it, we got, we have to hear from Patricia King. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no week would be complete here at fighting for the faith without hearing fractured fairy tales. Love that little uh, ditty. It reminds me of my childhood. Uh, so here, we, uh, Patricia King has got a fresh new message from God. Take take a listen. I'm receiving a uh, vision right now of a of a quill, and it speaks to me of an anointing to be an author. No, you know what, folks? Um, I hope you don't think less of me, but she, um, this message that she's getting may actually be for me. Yeah, it's true. I, 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 I feel somewhere deep down in my heart that I am potentially the one to whom this message is coming. Yeah, you know, that 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 God has anointed me to become an author. But we continue, and it speaks to me of an anointing to be an author. And I sense that there's someone watching the program, and and you've been stirred to write a book. You have written articles already, like little, little, um, you know. That's me. That, yeah, yeah. I write blog posts, and I've written little op-ed pieces. Oh, this has got to be talking about me. Studies or little thoughts that you've penned on paper, and you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have definitely got a gift. <laughs> Thanks, Patricia. I didn't think you. I had no idea you cared. But God is going to give you a book. In fact, I see a download coming out of heaven. And- uh, a download coming out? God's going to give me a downloaded book? Isn't that plagiarism? And you're going to have a lot of enjoyment writing it. And God's going to be with you as you write that book. It's going to be really special. It, yeah, you know, it's funny because the, the name of the book is uh, The the Great Heresies of the 21st Century. Patricia King, Brian McLaren, Tony Jones. Yeah. To your own heart. And I see memoir. So it's going to have something to do with things that you've walked through with the Lord. And yeah, you know, like all these heresies you guys are. It's going to bring healing and blessing to you. Oh, I can hardly wait. And it's going to be a blessing to those who know you as well. Wow. I, I don't know what to say. I, I Tears. Hang on a second here. I should blow my nose. Okay. Yeah. I feel much better. Th- thanks, Patricia. I mean, I, I mean, I, wow. Oh, God cares. <sighs> Bizarre. You know, here's the deal: is is that so-called special message could have been for just about anybody. I, I, you know, I mean, this is like having your fortune uh, told, you know, at, at at the county fair or something. It's just ridiculous. 
Anyways, all right, moving along. Uh, let's uh, dive into the program proper. Make yourself comfortable. Adult beverages are okay. Drunkenness, not okay. Fuzzy bunny slippers if it's cold weather. Let's begin. From the Christian Post, headline reads, A gavel falls on marriage. The Proposition 8 decision by Albert Muller Jr. I read, The importance of the decision handed down yesterday by U.S. District Judge Vaughn R. Walker in California's Proposition 8 trial will be difficult to exaggerate. Proponents of same-sex marriage immediately declared a major victory, and for good reason. The editorial board of the New York Times declared the verdict an instant landmark in American legal history. And so it is, even if later reversed upon appeal. Judge Walker's decision is sweeping and comprehensive, basically affirming every argument and claim put forth by those demanding that California's Proposition 8 be declared unconstitutional. That Proposition 8, affirmed by a clear majority of California voters, by the way, um, I was living in California and did vote for Proposition 8, um, affirmed by a clear majority of California voters, amended the state's constitution to define marriage as the union of a man and a woman. In one brazen act of judicial energy, California's voters were told that they had no right to define marriage, and thousands of years of human wisdom were discarded as irrational. Even as the case is immediately appealed, the reality is that a federal court has now declared that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry. Pressing beyond this verdict, Judge Walker also released a set of findings that include some of the most radical statements about marriage yet encountered. In rendering his verdict, Judge Walker declared that California's Proposition 8 violates both equal protection and due process rights of homosexual citizens. The proposition, he concluded, fails to advance any rational basis in singling out gay men and lesbians for denial of a marriage license. He continued, indeed, the evidence shows Proposition 8 does nothing more than enshrine in the California Constitution the notion that opposite-sex couples are superior to same-sex couples. <clears throat> I, I think they are. Um same-sex couples um, seem to have a problem procreating, and um, the plumbing is all wrong there. <clears throat> In order to reach his conclusion, Judge Walker provided more than 100 pages of legal reasoning based on the evidence that he allowed or accepted. On page after page, Judge Walker arbitrarily accepted the claims put forth by proponents of same-sex marriage as rational and declares the evidence and arguments put forth by the defenders of Proposition 8 as lacking in any rational basis. The decision handed down Wednesday in San Francisco comes with virtually no surprise. Judge Walker's statements and rulings in the course of the trial proceedings pointed directly to the decision released yesterday. This decision, uh, whatever its final resolution, serves as an undeniable reminder of the power of federal judges. A single unelected judge nullified the will of the voters of California as expressed through the electoral process. Those who have been arguing that judicial activism is a fiction will have a look will have to look this decision in the face. The New York Times celebrated Judge Walker's usurpation of the political process, arguing that there are times when legal opinions help lead public opinions. The paper and the proponents of same sex marriage clearly hope <clears throat> that this is one of those times. That is clearly the most significant dimension of the verdict. 
Judge Walker's decision bearing the full force of a federal court adds to the sense of inevitability that the proponents of same-sex marriage have been so carefully constructing in recent years. Defendage of marriage as a heterosexual institution should resist the temptation to minimize the significance of this decision, even as the verdict is vigorously appealed. Yesterday's ruling is a huge win for the homosexual community and a significant step toward the normalization of homosexuality within the culture. He's right. Anyone who reads Judge Walker's decision will see that the normalization of homosexuality was one of his major concerns. Any belief that heterosexual relations are morally superior to homosexual relations is, quote, not a proper basis on which to legislate, he asserted. Proposition 8, he insisted, was premised on the belief that same-sex couples simply are not as good as opposite-sex couples. The judge claimed to have uncloaked the real reason California's voters adopted Proposition 8, and it was, quote, a desire to advance the belief that opposite-sex couples are morally superior to same-sex couples. Listen carefully. Even though that is true, I don't think that's what was at the heart of Proposition 8. The judge released enumerated findings with his decisions. Among the most important and startling of these are the following, quote, Religious beliefs that gay and lesbian relationships are sinful or inferior to heterosexual relationships harm gays and lesbians. Quote, children do not need to be raised by a male parent and a female parent to be well-adjusted, and having both a male and female parent does not increase the likelihood that a child will be well-adjusted. Quote, the gender of a child's parent is not a factor in the child's adjustment. The sexual orientation of an individual does not determine whether that individual can be a good parent. Quote, Same-sex couples are identical to opposite-sex couples in the characteristics relevant to the ability to form successful marital unions. In a breathtaking and brief sentence, Judge Walker asserted, quote, Gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. Marriage under law is a union of equals. Until this verdict, such language had never appeared in a decision of a federal court. If gender is no longer an essential part of marriage, then marriage has been essentially redefined right before our eyes. The religious liberty dimensions of the decision are uh, momentous and deeply troubling. While Judge Walker declared that the religious freedoms of citizens and religious bodies were not violated because no such body is required to recognize or perform same-sex marriage, the very structure of his argument condemned religious and theological objections to homosexuality and same-sex marriage as both harmful and irrational. Let me read that again. The very structure of Judge Walker's argument condemned religious and theological objections to homosexuality and same-sex marriage as both harmful and irrational. So it's not harmful or irrational to be homosexual. It's harmful and rational to believe that marriage is an institution created by God for a man and a woman. So you are now irrational. The entire history of humanity is now irrational. Beyond this, Judge Walker claimed to read the minds of California voters, arguing that the majority voted for Proposition 8 based upon religious opposition to homosexuality, which he then rejected as an illegitimate state interest. In essence, 
This establishes secularism as the only acceptable basis for moral judgment on the part of the voters. The judges' statements condemning religious opposition to homosexuality speak for themselves in terms animus. Judge Walker's decision will be appealed to the California to the Court of Appeals of the Ninth Circuit, also located in San Francisco, the most notoriously liberal appeals court in the nation. Inevitably, the case will then be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The decision handed down by Judge Walker, especially as expressed in his findings, was clearly constructed with such appeals in mind. Thousands of cases make their way through the federal courts each year. Some are important, but only a few have lasting legal significance. Whatever happens on appeal, the decision handed down yesterday by Judge Von R. Walker will reverberate for decades to come, yesterday, a very important gavel fell on marriage. The central institution of human civilization suffered a direct hit, and its future hangs in the balance. <clears throat> I absolutely agree with Albert Muller here. Folks, what we're seeing in our lifetime, and believe me when I tell you, I have no hope. I have no hope or, or whatsoever that even if this thing makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court will overturn Judge Walker's decision. I, I, not, with, uh, not with Kagan uh, you know, heading to the Supreme Court. Not with everything that's been going on. We've got, we've got a serious problem. And here's what's going to happen, is that homosexuality is going to be the hammer that the government uses to smash the Christian church and those who on the basis of God's word, say that homosexuality is a sin. It already is happening. It's already happening in the, you know, in the colleges. The counseling uh, students who are told they can't graduate unless they undergo remediation because they believe that homosexual behavior is a sin. That's tip of the iceberg. What happened yesterday is every bit as monumental as Roe versus Wade. And I do not do not have optimism that the Supreme Court will eventually rule in in favor of Proposition 8. I just don't. Homosexuality will become the club issue that will literally be used to batter pastors and churches into secular submission. That's how serious this is. Let us pray that our great God and Savior grants sanity to the Supreme Court, and that this activism would be overturned and that Proposition 8 would be allowed to stand. Because if it isn't, the church is in serious danger. Let me read another story from the Christian Post. Headline reads, Outed pastor says no to homosexuality and follows Jesus. Now, this is a great little counterpoint, okay? Um... When I used to work at Focus on the Family, uh, there was some there were some folks who, at Focus on the Family, were tasked with going to different churches, congregations, and meetings and stuff like that to talk about homosexual activism and what the activists were doing. And this was all the way back in the early nineteen nineties. Uh, so, you know, this late eighties, early nineties when this was going on. And I remember one gal uh, who worked at Focus on the Family, who she had a regular column in one of the Focus on the Family uh, magazines. I, maybe it had to do. I forget the the one. Anyway, and um, she went and spoke at you know, at a 
you know, at an event, you know, opposing, uh, you know, the, the homosexual agenda. And, um, she, she owned a, uh, convertible Mazda Miata and they took, um, while she was at this event, you know, while she was inside, they basically took animal excrement and completely destroyed the interior of her car with it because she would dare to speak out against homosexuals. So what happened here, I, I, I say that to kind of lead off to this thing here, and that is is that um, this, there's a pastor, a Lutheran pastor in uh, Minneapolis, and he struggles with same-sex attraction. He recognizes it as a sin, and he has been seeking help for his sin, and what happened is is that a gay magazine sent a uh, an undercover uh, journalist to attend these meetings there, and they outed this guy. You know, basically trying you know to turn it into a big story. But I, I watch the way this is, this is handled, and and I I think this is a you know I think really turns the topic properly. <clears throat> this is by Lillian Kwan. After being outed as uh, by a GLBT magazine and being placed on leave, the Reverend Tom Brock returned to Hope Lutheran Church on Sunday. He didn't preach to the Minneapolis congregation for, uh, of some 450 people, but he admitted to his flock for the first time that he struggles with same-sex attraction. It's a struggle he's had since college, but the Lutheran pastor has never given in to the temptation. He has been attending a Catholic accountability group called Courage, and has always believed and continues to believe that homosexual behavior is a sin. It's been a difficult past five weeks for him, he said, since Minnesota Lavender Magazine exposed Brock's struggles to the public. In a questionable move, Lavender reporter Tom Town- uh, John Townsend attended the Courage support group meetings undercover and recounted Brock's confidential stories in the June edition of the magazine. The gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered publication implied that Brock had acted out on his attraction to men, but the longtime Lutheran pastor said the magazine got it totally wrong. I'm a 57-year-old virgin, he asserted. Brock may have initially had some anger towards the Minneapolis-based magazine, but he told the Christian Post Tuesday that by the grace of God, he was able to forgive them rather quickly. He added, I do pray for their salvation because their point of view is that you can behave like this and there's no problem with it, and biblically, that's not true. His same-sex attractions weren't quite a secret. He's not, he not only had his support group, but he also talked to some close friends about his struggle. Quote, I have been, I've had personal support for many years, he said. I just never got up into the pulpit and told everybody, look, this is my struggle. Trying to recall how long he's had same-sex attractions, Brock said, I knew for sure I had a problem in college. Even looking earlier, I can see the signs. The 57-year-old pastor remembered attending a conference, possibly a Love One Out conference, which equips Christians with how to respond with truth and grace to people struggling with homosexuality and hearing a psychiatrist talk about the hundreds of people he has counseled. Quote, he said he has never met one man in all of his clients who, who, when he was a little boy, had a close relationship with his father, Brock recounted. My dad was kind of distant, he said. 
Brock doesn't believe that people are born a homosexual. If anything, he believes it's more nurture than nature. I don't see anything biblically that would justify the belief that God makes you a homosexual. He explained, biblically, we all believe in original sin and that we're all born sinners. I don't believe there's a gay gene or that we're born gay. My belief is early in life there's a breakdown between the child and the same-sex parent, like a son not getting a masculine identity from his father. But even if a gay gene were to be proven, which Brock highly doubts will happen, the Minneapolis pastor said it still doesn't change anything. The fact that you are born with a sinful inclination doesn't give you the right to practice it, he stressed. Now, and, and you know what, this is, I mean, this is just handled so artfully. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is real straightforward, okay? I am not, I don't struggle with uh, homosexual attraction. I am a dude who is absolutely heterosexual. That being said, is that the thing I have to guard against is opposite sex attraction, to to not lust after somebody of the opposite sex. That is equally wrong in God's eyes as lusting after somebody of the same sex. And I think it's fair to say that pretty much everybody on the planet has struggled with those desires, the improper desires. The important thing is, is that we go to the cross to be forgiven and we recognize all of that as sin. And And Pastor Brock is doing a fantastic job of doing that. He continues, interestingly, the conflict between his inclination towards men and what he believes, Scripture states clearly, never sent him running from God. He never questioned the Bible's stance that homosexual behavior is a sin, and at the same time was never shaken in his faith. Quote, I knew I was a sinner and that I needed a Savior, so it actually drove me to Christ, not away from him, he said. In a way, it strengthened my faith. Since the exposure, the Hope Congregation has been very supportive of Brock. After weeks of looking into the matter, a task force at the church found the pastor credible. Brock was previously the senior pastor for 21 years, but is now just a pastor. Quote, I can't tell you how wonderful they've been, Brock said, adding that it's a conservative, Bible-believing church. Now, you know, Brock's story and his stance, I mean, stands in stark opposition and in contrast to even Ted Haggard. We continue. Hope Lutheran is a member of the Association of Free Lutheran Congregations. The congregation left the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America nine years ago over its increasing liberal direction on homosexuality and over abortions that are covered in the ELCA health care plan for staff. Quote, Last year is when the ELCA decided to allow practicing homosexual pastors, and that's causing a lot of churches to leave. But we left nine years ago over that direction that it was going. But even more so, maybe, is the fact that the ELCA pays for abortions with offering dollars. And that has just so grieved us. Last August, the ELCA's chief legislative body voted to approve a resolution allowing gays and lesbians in publicly accountable, lifelong, monogamous, same-gender relationships to serve as clergy. In the AFLC, practicing homosexuals cannot be ordained nor serve as a pastor. Quote, they would never believe, like many do in the ELCA, that as long as you really love each other, you can have a gay relationship. That's just not them. Brock said of the conservative denomination, though his struggles have been made public and he still currently has temptations, Brock said he plans to continue to preach the same message that if you don't repent of sin, 
and come to Christ, you're not going to go to heaven. But as one new message he can share, I have this struggle. You can have the struggle, say no to it, and still follow Jesus. He's not planning to go back immediately to Hope Lutheran's pulpit. He said he's going to take some time to heal and also work on plans for the church's TV ministry expansion. The plan is, I'll be back hopefully fairly soon. Just we got to work that all out, he said. And when he returns, his sermons will eventually be beaming to 20 cities across the country in addition to the Twin Cities. As for going back to his Catholic support group, Brock isn't sure whether he's going to return. He may start attending a different group, he said. In the meantime, he said, I will still be accountable to people. Our prayers go out to Pastor Brock. Our prayers go out to him for many reasons. But we also thank him for the godly example and the Christian example that he's given of forgiveness and for boldly confessing that Jesus is his Savior and that Jesus died even for the homosexual lust and attractions that he feels and struggles with. May God grant him peace and ease his attraction and suffering. We're up to our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. 
Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your pastor doesn't have a plan for what he's going to do uh, when it comes to the homosexual couples that are going to come demanding that he marry them, he might want to put one in place. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, I've been talking to some pastors about what they're going to do if uh, stuff like you know this comes down where they are going to have to legally marry same-sex couples uh, because that's what's really coming is this demand that uh, pastors and churches, you know, it's not just that it's going to be legalized. It'll be illegal for a pastor to say no on biblical and religious grounds. And the pastors I've talked to, they've basically said, we won't uh we won't offer matrimony to anybody we refuse to be put in a situation where legally we'll be forced to so we just won't marry anybody if they and they'll say if you want to get married you'll go get a license from the state but they won't perform the ceremony in their church that's what i'm hearing from pastors about this by the way okay moving along from the huffington post frank schaefer the uh <clears throat> Son of uh, Francis Schaefer, uh, author of the book Crazy for God, How I Grew Up as One of the Elect, Helped Found the Religious Right, and Lived to Take All or Almost All of It Back. <laughs> what a fine young man. <clears throat> he writes in his most recent op-ed piece, maybe God rejects the Bible. Right, yeah. God's going to reject his own word. Uh, again, I work from the simple premise that it it's unwise to have a view of God's word that's different than Christ's since he was God in human flesh and proved it by raising himself from the dead. So having a view of God's word that, that is different than Jesus is, uh, well, dangerous to say the least. But Frank Schaefer in his, in his supreme liberal wisdom writes, he says, as I argue in my book, Patience with God, faith for people who don't like religion or atheism. Maybe if there is a God or if Jesus spoke truth about how we are to care for others 
or if the light of love in my life has taught me anything, then the best thing a believer in any actual God can do is admit that a lot of the Bible is hate-filled blasphemy. That's funny. Jesus didn't consider any parts of the Bible to be hate-filled blasphemy. In fact, he even quotes one of the most, quote, hate-filled and blasphemous sections of Scripture when he talks about if if a child doesn't obey father and mother that he should be, he's not worthy to live. Jesus quotes that and basically says it's from God. Look it up. Anyway, um, so, but of course, Frank Schaefer, he knows better than Jesus. Um, so he, he thinks that it, 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 you, the right thing for you to do would, would be to just admit that some of the Bible is hate-filled blasphemy. Actually, the funny thing here is, is that what Frank Schaefer is actually writing is hate-filled blasphemy. He hates he absolutely abhors the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and hates him so much that he, on a regular basis, blasphemes him. We continue. Frank Schaefer writes, he says, There is a verse in Timothy that says that all scripture is for our edification. This verse, not not the many Bible stories of the many killings ordained by God, is the scariest verse in the Bible. In Timothy 3.16, we read, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The all scripture being spoken of is the Old Testament. The New Testament was just being written at the time. And these days, of course, for conservative Christians, the word scripture covers their part of the Bible, too. The scary, how scary is this verse? Well, we'll take every vile verse reeking of barbarity in the Bible and append the all scripture is ending to it. In this unsettling thought experiment, for instance, take St. Paul's New Testament advice to women. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Then add all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. End of discussion. Be silent. Yeah, I, I, I detect this story is pretty much hate-filled and blasphemous. Yes, God has revealed. Not only does Paul make that argument that he doesn't allow a woman to speak, he then goes on to appeal to creation itself. For Adam was created first, then woman. Men and women have different but complementary roles. They work together in a marriage partnership and raise children together. The male serving the role as father, the woman serving the role as mother. Never the two to be confused different and complementary. Or how about this? I continue. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I can't believe that God would command the Israelites to kill donkeys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by, by the way, what the story he's reading here is, uh, this is a story taken from 1 Samuel. God has pronounced judgment against 
Amalek, okay, and sends Saul, the king of Israel, to execute his judgment against the sinfulness of Amalek, okay, and and like God gave Joshua the commands in the book in the book of Joshua regarding uh, the city of Jericho, everything was to be devoted to destruction, everything, okay, and God commanded Saul to kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now, the funny thing here is is that Frank Schaefer's all bent out of shape, as if God is somehow immoral for commanding or for making such a command. No, God is not immoral for making such a command. He's God. And those who transgress his law, who apostatize, who blaspheme, who are idolaters, who refuse to recognize him as their creator and refuse to fear, love, and trust in him, which, by the way, as our creator, he has every right to demand of us. God is not unjust. He is not capricious. As frighteningly scary as that commandment is, it should make all of us shake in our boots because here's the deal. Each and every one of us, you, me, and everybody else who lives on this planet, are sinful by nature. And we have earned God's wrath and judgment. God has the right to say your life is over and call you to be in his presence, to stand before him in judgment. And the story of Amalek should cause every one of us to get a gut check and realize, you know what? I'm not any better than Amalek. And God's justice here is just. It's not unjust. If the king of the universe has determined that you are guilty and that the the wages of your sin is death, he has the right to call the chips in. Frank Schaefer is now turning around and accusing God of being immoral. But whose morals, by whose morals, is God immoral? Not God's. Uh, He's immoral only by Frank Schaefer's rules and morals. It always amazes me when people are, you basically accuse God of immorality. It's just absolutely bizarre when that happens. We continue. Or hang on a second. It says, so this is what the Lord says. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, and camel and donkey. But Christ has changed all that mean stuff. The hopeful evangelical says, not so fast. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Uh, By the way, um, as somebody who is part of the Lutheran Church, the original evangelicals, um. I don't say that God has changed, that Christ has changed all that mean stuff at all. The story stands as it is. And all scripture is given by God, by inspiration. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and training in righteousness. That story, as difficult of a pill as it is to swallow, 
It's a, it's a pill that must be swallowed and not changed. <clears throat> we continue. Or, quote, So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to the concubine on his way, there lay his concubine fallen on the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set for home. Yeah, that's what uh, Judges chapter nineteen twenty-five through 28 says. But you didn't really give us the whole story there, Frank. Um, But nowhere in the text does it say that God commanded him to do this. I mean, this is the story of a Levite priest with an unfaithful concubine. Go back and read Judges 19 in its full context, it'll help you understand what's going on here. But yeah, I mean, it didn't say God commanded him to send her out. That was a terrible incident, and it's recorded in all of its gory details in the Scripture, and it's there for a reason. Hard to divine divine the reason, though, um, when all you do is quote the punchline without really giving the whole story. Not that I would expect you to do that, um, Frank. So, anyway, Frank goes on to give several other examples of apparently these terrible stories in the Bible. And uh, here's the, um, uh, here's kind of the punchline in the, uh, of the uh, op-ed piece. He says, there is another choice besides rejecting religion outright or adopting an all in the Bible is true fundamentalism, one too rarely made. The fact is too few religious people are willing to suffer the loss of approval by their religious leaders, friends, and family to make this other choice. Embrace faith in God by thinking for yourself and openly reject the parts of one scripture outright that fly in the face of fact, compassion, and decency. But where would that leave me, they ask? I'd be adrift in an ocean of uncertainty. They they say yes, and perhaps that's the only honest place to be. Maybe the actual the actual God doesn't like or accept the God of the Bible any more than any than the rational and compassionate people do. I hope that's true because if it's not, then it turns out that most people are a lot of a lot nicer than their God, which begs the question: Where did that niceness come from? If that is God created everything, what a nut job! Um, here's the deal: Jesus Christ affirms that all of Scripture, the Old Testament, is God's word. It's the word of God. He says. And not one jot or tittle of it will it will fall away. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Again, it's unwise to have a view of Scripture that's different than Jesus. And he's God in human flesh, and he has way better credentials than Frank Schaefer. And I think Frank Schaefer is really not one to point his fingers at God and say that he's indecent or immoral or wrong. Because I want to know what standard is he using to judge God? Where did he get his idea of morality from, from which he can then turn around and bludgeon the God of scriptures with and claim that he's immoral or indecent or unjust? It sounds like his idea, his selective morality is what he uses to fuel his atheism or his refusal to believe in God. But he shows, and he quite, quite reasonably, that he hates the God of scriptures. Frank Schaefer hates the God of the Bible. I'm glad he's open about it, but I have bad news for him, that he will one day stand before that very God and have to give an accounting of his life. 
we pray that God would grant Frank Schaefer repentance and the forgiveness of his sins because he's heaping them up to the max. Okay, we're up on our second break. When we come back, sermon review time. Got a lot of stuff to do on our sermon review, part two of our sermon series that we're going through uh, domination from uh, uh, Church by the Glades in Coral Springs, Florida, so you don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of... Giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. 
For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Let's uh, cue up our sermon review music. good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. As promised, we're working our way through most of an entire sermon series. So if the preacher sounds familiar, he should. Just reviewed part one of the domination sermon series from Church by the Glades down there in Coral Springs, Florida, Pastor David Hughes. Now, supposedly, this is part two of a sermon series on the book of Joshua, and um, hopefully we'll get into some of the, um, you know, the book itself. Now, I work from some simple common sense ideas. Uh, idea number one, you can't teach, properly teach the Word of God by twisting God's Word. Call me crazy, but you can't teach sound doctrine by teaching false doctrine as if it's true doctrine. I know that sounds revolutionary, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean... I've run this by a couple of seeker-driven pastors, and they're looking at me like, oh, what are you talking about? Anyway, um, so that's one of the things we work from. And, and if you remember, uh, last time when we did the first sermon in the series called Getting Unstuck, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the question on the table uh, that he kind of left with us, he said there was four things that we've got to do before God will bless, bless us with momentum. So we have... Um, works-based divine momentum being taught here. Um, although I'm not really familiar with a category in Scripture called divine momentum. You know, the Big Mo. And you're going, no, I don't know the Big Mo. Neither do I. But apparently David Hughes does. All right. Finishing off the music here. Dramatic ending. <clears throat> 
And now for our sermon. Uh, here, here's David Hughes, uh, Church by the Glades, part two of the Domination series. This one's entitled Divine Directions. Welcome to another creative and encouraging teaching by Pastor David Hughes, lead pastor at Church by the Glades. For more information on Church by the Glades, including directions and service times, please visit us at www.cbglades.com. What's up, Church by the Glades? Good to see you. If you're a guest, welcome. Thrilled you're here. I'm David Hughes. I'm one of the pastors. And I need a little love from the middle section. Middle section. If you're in the section right here, uh, that person next to you is a very nice person. Nice person. Friendly person. You want to get close to that person, don't you? They, they have wonderful hygiene. They're a nice person. So the count of three, the middle section is going to stand up and kind of scoot towards the center a little bit. We're looking for some seats. And these two sections will give up thunderous applause for the middle. Thunderous applause as the middle section does the sanctify. Uh, so I guess one of the things we should keep in mind is that apparently... Uh, there's a lot of folks showing up to hear this particular sermon. I mean, this, this isn't just, you know, 20, 30 people. We've got an entire house filled. They're, they're looking for some seats. And so uh, keep in mind, every one of those seats that's filled, these are people who are hearing uh, the sermon uh, with the expectation that what they're getting is sound biblical doctrine and what God's Word really teaches. Let's see if uh, David Hughes delivers. Right, scoot. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's good. That should cover it right there. You, you're good right there. Thank you. That's, that's good. Now, if you have to go to the bathroom and you're in the middle, you're stuck. <laughs> Just so you know. Just so you know. Hey, uh, glad you are here today. Welcome to Church by the Glades. And if you're here for the first time, we're in a series of talks we just launched last week called Domination. It's about momentum. Uh, in life, if you want to accomplish your goals, if you want to succeed, you need momentum. But the problem is a lot of people in life are stuck relationally, habitually, spiritually, financially, professionally, stuck, stuck. Maybe you're, well, that's too personal. Maybe the person next to you, he's stuck. I'm looking at that person next to you. Maybe she looks like she's stuck. Maybe that person you brought, they're a little stuck in life. Doesn't mean they're unintelligent. Doesn't mean they lack motivation. They just kind of hit the wall and, they don't know exactly how to get themselves unstuck. Let me make sure this is registering with someone. Anybody here at all, anybody at all know someone, someone who's a little stuck in life. You know someone, of course not you, but someone else who's stuck. Oh, you know someone, good, good. Maybe you can share this information with them. You know, what's weird is, is that this is the second week, of, well, week, this is the second sermon in a row in this series and understand they were preached on subsequent Sundays, Sunday after Sunday, um, where, he, he, I mean, he's talking about, well, you know, if you're stuck, I mean, don't don't raise your hand. That's too personal. Uh, maybe it's just me, but um, I, I don't see a lot of people, you know, who are hanging their heads in shame and being, you know, having to wear a scarlet letter S, you know, when they've committed the sin of being stuck. You know, it's not seriously. I mean, can you imagine uh, a, a teenager coming home from school and and the teacher, you know, sending home a note saying, "Dear Mrs. So and So, um, your son Johnny, I I hate to inform you of this, but uh, your son Johnny, it has come to my attention, has a very serious problem. Uh, Johnny is." Well, I, I don't know how to put this any other way, except for to inform you that your son 
I know this is personal, uh, but your son Johnny is, um, well, stuck. Yeah, um, I, I, I know that this must come as a shock to you and that uh, you are very, very sad and upset, but Johnny is stuck and he has no big mo in his life. It's true. Um, I know that this that that you feel probably at this point that your life is over because Johnny is stuck. But with prayer and maybe some therapy, Johnny can get unstuck and and it, it, and once again climb out of that hole and no longer suffer from stuckness, but. Experience God's divine mo. Now it, it could it could just be me. I mean, maybe this is a big blight on humanity and society, and that I mean that this is up there with like finding out that your your child is a rapist or a murderer. But you know, <clears throat> we continue. Or maybe you brought that person, or maybe as you were here last week, as we began this conversation. By the way, based on the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bible, turn in the scripture uh, to the book of Joshua. It'll be chapter 1, Joshua in the text. That's the sixth book in the Bible. That's the, say with me, the sixth book. Help you find it. Good. Now, everyone, the sixth book in the Bible. That's good. Now, I said there's certain indicators you can tell if someone has lost their momentum. By the way, I like what John Maxwell, that famous speaker and author, he calls momentum the big mo. He talks about how vital it is that you have the big mo in your life in your relationships, in your organization, if you want to achieve worthy goals. And I said, sometimes when I see someone who lacks the big mo, there's certain indicators. Uh, in fact, let me just quickly review last week. Like, like one is maybe you lack momentum because you're lazy. I mean, the Bible, you know, says God blesses a work ethic, which be industrious and hardworking. And, and so maybe if you're lazy, you know, you need to kind of get off your backside and get to work. But there's other people who say, well, no, that's not my issue. That's not my issue. I'm working very hard. I just don't seem to be getting anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's a dynamic of some folks. They're busy. They're busy. They, they work very hard, but they're making no authentic life progress. And maybe that's you. That can be an indicator that you're lacking the big mo in your life. And, and I mentioned last week, too, if you got no big mo, momentum can be very frustrating when you see other people with it and they have it, but you don't have it. And that can be a difficult thing. And, and sometimes it happens. People who lack momentum become negative people. They become critical people. They criticize. In fact, the biblical word used you know, before the book of Joshua, the people of God, they grumble a bunch. They grumble. They grumble at the leadership. They grumble about Moses. Are you kidding me? They even grumble about God. In fact, that's another indicator. People who lack the big mo, uh, they, they will tend to assess blame. They'll kind of identify the other people who are responsible for their own lack of personal momentum. And sometimes if you get stuck, especially playing the blame game, uh, it doesn't make you better. It makes you... Thank you for the three people who remember last week. Thank you, you three people. It makes you kind of bitter, bitter, and oh my goodness, and bitterness causes all kinds of spiritual problems in your life, so be careful about that. And, and maybe you look at these indicators and you identify a few in your life and go, Oh my goodness, maybe, maybe that's me. Maybe in some area of my life, I, I'm stuck. I'm stuck because that's me. I complain a lot. I've become a negative person. Oh no. 
Or I, I become bitter. I, I can't forgive someone who's harmed me. I, I've assessed blame and they are responsible to a degree, but I don't like what this is doing in my life and in my heart. I won't trust people. I won't try anymore. I am stuck. Well, if you're stuck, God wants to get you unstuck. And I told you if you came back today, I was going to tell you about four things, four things, four amazing things that you can bring to the table. They're issues of attitude and action. Four things. You present these things to God. God will leverage these four things to get you unstuck. To bless you. There we go again. So apparently there's four things that he somehow has discovered, uh, but haven't been taught throughout the history of the church, that if you do these four things, God will see that you're serious and get you unstuck. I mean, this is a promise. If you do this, then God will do that. Let me back up the tape. Listen again. Uh, by the way, this uh, the Bible doesn't teach this. L- listen again. Four things, four amazing things that you can bring to the table. They're issues of attitude and action. Four things. You present these things to God. God will leverage these four things to get you unstuck, to bless you and favor you with divine momentum. Four things. All right, ready? Four things, four things. I'm going to tell you about two of the things today. And two next week. Now, don't be mad at me. Don't matter. I really wanted to give you all four. But, you know, as I began to study these these four principles in the Bible, they are so rich. I thought, man, if I try to cram all four into just one session, I'll be cheating my people. I'll be ripping you off. I'll be giving you like a scriptural happy meal when God wants you to dine on filet, you know. So God. okay. so here's the idea. He's telling us. That these are such, I mean, this is deep Bible preaching that you're about to hear, according to uh, David Hughes. I mean, because he doesn't want to, you know, skim the surface here. He wants to go deep, you know, in his biblical teaching on these four principles, these four things that uh, that you need to do. And, and then God will then leverage them to give you divine momentum. Again, I just ask the question, where does God reveal in Scripture clearly and without any question that if you do these four things, then he will bless you with divine momentum? Again, the reason I say this is because you cannot establish a biblical doctrine unless there is a clear teaching on the matter. For instance, I can tell you without any hesitation that stealing is a sin. The reason I know this is because there is a clear teaching in God's word that says, thou shalt not steal. Okay. I also know without any doubt that Jesus Christ is coming back again in glory to judge the living and the dead, that there's a day coming when the wrath of God will be revealed. How do I know this? God's word clearly teaches this doctrine. Now, as for the doctrine of divine momentum, now, I don't claim that I know everything about the Bible. I don't. However, as somebody who's been working very closely with uh, the biblical text, you know, since, you know, really since graduating from college nearly 20 years ago, um, in both English and in the biblical languages themselves, in Hebrew and in Greek, um, I cannot recall in either the Old Testament or the New Testament passages that discuss divine momentum, let alone the four things that I've got to do so that God will then look at me and bless me with divine momentum. 
And unless there's a clear teaching in God's word regarding divine momentum, then what David Hughes is doing here is really deceiving people. You cannot properly teach sound biblical doctrine by teaching false doctrine as if it's true doctrine. You can't properly teach what the Bible says by twisting God's word and making it say things that it doesn't say. I know that just sounds like radical crazy talk on my part, but if you think otherwise, show me how it's possible. Let's continue. And in my opinion, you get extra meat, that's a good thing. You get a little extra filet. In fact, imagine yourself at some nice restaurant, you order steak at Ruth's Chris or something, and what if the server came to you and said, I- I'm not gonna bring you one filet, I'm going to bring you so much filet, it's going to take you two meals. You can't consume it all and digest it all in this one. It's going to take you two meals to enjoy all the steak. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That would be a very good thing. Someone give you so much biblical beef, it's going to take us two sessions to consume this together. All right? So two today, and then, of course, two next week. So I'll see you next week at Church by the Glaze, because you've got to get the other two, because it'll be incomplete, half a meal. So two this week and two... Next week at Church by the Glades. So I'll see you next week at Church by the Glades. Turn to your neighbors and say, wow, see you next week. Go ahead, see you next week. And see you next week right here. See you next week. And, and turn to your neighbor again and say, look, 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 because oh, you might be stuck. You might be stuck. Oh, you look like you might be a little stuck. And I, I want to see you. God wants you to be very unstuck. So you've got to do these four things. Issues of action or attitude. What are they? Two today. Two today. The first one's going to sound very simple. But unless you bring this one into play, everything else will not work. Unless you have a a small dose of this, you're stuck. What is it? Hope. Hope. Say the word hope. 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 Vital. Vital. Because, you know, I I hope against hope that you got some hope. Because if you have no hope, you have no hope. And you'll be stuck. Okay. So I expect at this point for... David Hughes, to open up God's Word and show me from the clear, uh, unequivocal teaching of the Word of God that unless you have hope, then you are stuck, and that if you then get hope, then God will look down on you and bless you with divine momentum. Can any of you provide me with passages that clearly say this? And uh, I meet a lot of people without hope because maybe something bad's happened. Maybe, maybe as they assess their life, they, they look at someone else who's kind of victimized them and, 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 and taken something from them or they've lost something or, or something very precious in their life has perished. And because of that, you meet someone with, without hope. And if you have no hope, you have no big mo, you have no momentum, and, and you tend to want to quit in life unless you have hope. And I don't know you perhaps, but I know this about you. God wants you to have hope. You stay in Joshua chapter 1, the sixth book of your Bible. Stay in chapter 1. Let me turn a few books to the right and revisit a promise I briefly shared last week. I want to deal with this promise the next couple of weeks. Jeremiah 29, 11. I love this promise of God. Here's what God wants for you, it says. All right. I hate to have to do this. Um, Open your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 29. I've done this a million times at this point, at least if that's kind of an overstatement, but more times than I care to count is probably the better way of putting it. This passage gets twisted so badly. Okay. One of the rules of, of hermeneutics is that you never make a universal 
promise out of a promise that was specifically given to an individual person. Let me give you an example, okay, or to a uh, to an individual group. I could go into the scriptures, into the book of Judges, and I could tell you the story of Gideon and how God promised Gideon that uh, he would hand deliver his enemies, you know, the enemies of Israel, into his hands. Now, I can't make a universal application there. What God promised to Gideon was not promised to me. It wasn't promised to you. It wasn't promised uh, to your grandparents, our grandparents, to your mother's brother's sister's second cousin. It was promised to Gideon. Okay, so I can't go in and look at the promises given to Gideon by God and make a, a wider universal application regarding those promises. Instead, what those promises and how God handled Gideon shows us something of God's character and God's nature, and it shows that God, you know, because remember, there's a big meta-narrative going on in Scripture, and that is is that in Scripture we're following the scarlet thread of the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God, they fall into sin, they are punished by God, and on the same day in which that God judges them, God also gives them a promise that from the seed of Eve, uh, there, you know, uh, there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so there's this promise. So f- moving from chapter three through all of the Old Testament, we're following that scarlet thread, awaiting the seed of this woman, who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the one who, you know, who tempted humanity, and uh, by whose agency we were plunged into sin and darkness, and uh, and so. When we read through the book of Judges, what, we, what we're doing here is we're following that scarlet thread. We're looking at God's salvation work in history. Okay, So the, what we can see how God delivers, how God saves, how God rescues. And by saving his covenant people, what he's doing then is protecting the line of the Messiah and, and then by extrapolation, saving the entire world, so to speak, in that, that Christ died for the sins of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is saved, because not all repent and trust in Christ. However, what we're doing is we're following God's saving act for all of humanity through, through human history. That's the meta narrative of Scripture. <clears throat> so, when we read that story, it does show us things about God's character and God's nature, but it would be absolutely presumptuous and deceitful of somebody to say that the promises that were given to Gideon now apply to everybody you know, or to all Christians. They don't. So you have to be real careful. If a promise is given that is not regarded by God to be a promise that is to be universally understood, you cannot extrapolate the, a specific promise to a specific person or a group and extrapolate that into a, <clears throat> into a greater application so that it's everybody you can't you got to be you just you know no s no bueno <clears throat> a little spanish there so we read jeremiah chapter 29 i begin at verse 1 these are the words of the letter that jeremiah the prophet sent from jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from jerusalem to babylon who was this written to? The exiles in Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, 
and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. <clears throat> now, this is all part of the context. So, you know, they just like to pick up at verse 11, which because you know, they can make the appearance that this is some kind of universal application. But <clears throat> there's some commandments that go along with this letter. And that is, is that, you know, those of you in Babylon <clears throat> uh, take wives, have sons, have daughters, have produce, multiply, and things like that. Um, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, that you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. Kind of like it's a lie here that what uh, Pastor David Hughes is telling his people by misapplying this passage I did not send them, declares the Lord, verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, whom, who, who, who does God have plans for? If you read the entire context, it's really clear. He's, God says he has plans for the exiles in Babylon, I know the plans I have for you, you exiles in Babylon. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. Whose fortunes? The fortunes of those whose fortunes were lost when they were taken into captivity to Babylon, where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. When you read this passage in context, it cannot be applied to you and to me. There are no universal promises given in this text for you and I. These were promises given to the exiles in Babylon, and to misapply this is to lie and to deceive people. It is to say things about God and, and basically make it sound like God is giving you promises that God has never given to you. Now, it does show something about the nature of God and, and, and that God is kind and merciful and really does care, truly does care about the fortunes of his people. But the promises that were given to these exiles do not apply to you and I. Not directly, no. I can't say with any certainty that God, God's plan for your life is to prosper you and to bless you in such a way that you're, you know, that your fortunes will be well here on planet Earth prior to your death and Christ's return. It might be that God's plans for you are for you to be a martyr, for you to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus Christ and for you to be publicly humiliated and to die on behalf of Christ. We continue. 
It's on my screen back there. Look behind you. You know, know I got a cheat screen back there. There it is. There it is. It's, it's now it's here too. All right. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Get ready. Plans to give you and a future. Hope in a future was last week, but hope. So God says my plan for you is hope. My plan for you is hope. But there's somebody here. No, you. Oh, man. So he's saying that this passage is teaching that you have to have hope. And if you have hope, because God says he wants you to have hope, then he, he, he will act in your behalf and get you unstuck and give you divine momentum. The text doesn't even teach that at all either. This is not sound biblical doctrine that he's preaching. Life has beat on you so badly. Something has happened to you. Something, you know, maybe, maybe back when you had hope. Maybe back, back in the day you had hope. You, why? You had this big dream. You had this big dream. Here's the things I'm going to do. I'm going to have all kinds of life momentum. And you had this big dream, but something happened and the dream died. So apparently, uh, the big problem here is uh, that, that we all face or that he's trying to address here is <clears throat> the death of a dream. Yeah, you know, it, it's terrible. I mean, it, you know, I, I just think about that. I mean, there's, I, I understand that there are billions of people across the world who, um, for one reason or another, have experienced the death of a dream. Yes, there's nothing worse than when a dream dies. Yeah, that's, uh, that's just the absolute worst thing that can happen to a person. And that's what Jesus came to solve, was to solve that big problem of dreams dying. In fact, I, I, I think of that passage in Fifth uh, John chapter 97, verse 273, that says, <clears throat> I am the resurrection and the life. He who has divine momentum will never have their dreams die. Those are from the green letters from the fifth John with, well, you, you know what I'm saying. We continue. When anything as big as your dream dies, when something like that dies, it tends to sabotage your hope and you kind of want to quit. When, when things die, you know, when, when your, your opportunity dies, when you're in a dead end job, when, when something dies, when your marriage dies, when, when what someone you love dies, when, when your dream dies, you tend to lose hope and you, you want to quit. Yeah. You know, I, I think about, you know, when actual human beings die. And those real human beings, when they really do die and stand before God in judgment and, you know, after the human being, not their dream or their marriage or their finances or their hope for their career, when, but when the actual person dies and they stand before the Lord, I don't think God is going to sit there and go, well, did you experience your dreams? I mean... I wanted to bless you, but I don't know. I have I, the, the the books here are a little unclear as to whether or not you actually followed the four principles laid out in my word, so that I could have given you divine momentum. No, I, somehow I think that when people die and they stand before God after they've really died and uh, they really do face God in judgment, that um, the the thing that's going to be front and center has nothing to do with their dreams. Yeah. 
it's going to be either they trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and they're declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect and sinless life and his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave for our justification, or they will stand before God in their righteousness and have their righteousness judged by him and dreams dying and things like that will kind of really be far from people's minds. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, do you have a different way of reading scripture? I mean, have you read passages that really do say that when human beings die, that the thing that's they're going to be looked at as to whether or not they had lived their dreams and their dreams didn't die and they had hope, you know, for their whatevers. Uh, I mean, I mean, a lot of people whose dreams have died and they have, they have no hope. In fact, as we begin the book of Joshua, uh, a very optimistic book, a forward-moving book, a book full of big mo. You recall last week, the first verse and a half, not very optimistic. Now, auspicious beginning to an optimistic book. Let's come back and revisit Joshua 1. Verse 1 and 2. And you see, there's a lot of death. A lot of talk of death in the first verse and a half. It says, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. As a verse and a half talking about death a whole lot. And I found people who lost hope tend to have a lot of death talk. They give it out. They out themselves with their death talk. They'll say things like this. Like, once upon a time, when I was young, I thought I would knock the world dead. But I've made a bunch of brain dead decisions since then. I'm, I'm, I'm in a dead end career. Oh, I, uh, financially, financially, I'm drowning in debt. This economy is killing me. Is this murder out there? I try to make progress. I get stopped dead in my tracks. Relationally, I'm dead meat. I mean, we're, my, my kids, my kids, oh, they're killing me. They're going to send me to an early grave. My marriage, my marriage for years have been D-O-A, dead on the altar. I mean, I, I have no hope. I just feel like quitting. I mean, why even bother? I mean, what? Uh, again, this seems like such a surface problem, but maybe it's just that I'm such a, you know, a negative and old school kind of guy when it comes to the Bible. Um, it, maybe I'm just too critical because I don't have enough divine momentum in my life. But um, I, when I look at the category of death, the big issue uh, as as it pertains to God, Christ, and the cross. I, I, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 1, comes to mind. Uh, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the entire rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so when it comes to the death of things, um, the, the one thing that we all universally have in common, all human beings, is that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. What I haven't seen in uh, universally true among all human beings is uh, this idea that some people experience stuckness or they don't have momentum in their life. I know plenty of pagans, plenty of pagans, uh, who are very successful in life. They don't have a lack of momentum, and they're far from stuck. In fact, uh, 
you know, you think of movie stars and, you know, people who've really got it all together. They, you know, well, some movie stars don't. But you, you get what I'm saying. You think of some of the, uh, the forward-moving uh, industrious uh, people out there who uh, in, in the business community, they, uh, the, many of them are pagans, and yet their careers don't seem to be stuck or stagnating. So the question then is, is that why would a non-Christian who isn't stuck need divine momentum when apparently they have all kinds of momentum going in their lives and they don't even need God to uh, give it to them? It, it just seems to happen to happen to them naturally. So this is apparently, uh, you know, I mean, if if I were to go to a non-believer and say, hey, listen, you need to have divine momentum in your life so that you, your dreams don't die. And they look at me and say, my dreams aren't dead. I'm I'm living them quite well, thank you. Do they need Jesus? Well, they don't need this Jesus, the Jesus that David Hughes is preaching about or the God that David Hughes is preaching about. They don't need that God at all if they're already successful. Yeah, you see the problem? Yet when it comes to the death category, the Bible says that all humanity is dead in trespasses and sins by nature, which ironically is the very issue that Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross to solve. Not Jesus didn't come to solve the big your dreams are dead problem. He came to solve the big your dead in trespasses and sins problem. Why, why beat a dead horse? And when something dies, you tend to lose hope and kind of quit and give up in life. And I guess I don't blame you, right? If you've had something stolen from you, something's perished in your life, you've lost something like your dream or your careers or maybe someone, something's died. In fact, if something dies, like here in verse verse 1, quit. Just quit, give up. If something dies, have no hope. Unless... Unless I was just thinking, unless maybe, you know, death is a very staggering thing because death can put the kibosh on our momentum. Unless you know someone who faced death and came out on top. I don't mean someone who faced a deadly experience, car accident, came out okay. Okay, now notice, we're, we're, I can name the person, Jesus. He faced death and came out on top. Um, however, is this really correctly handling what Jesus Christ died for? Uh, someone who had like six heart attacks, but they're still kicking. I don't mean a cancer survivor, but they're still hanging on. No, no, no. I mean someone who faced death, like was dead. Someone who's like all the way dead. L like if you know someone who's like dead like three whole days, three whole, maybe nailed to a cross, dead. Then dead is a stone. And then beat death. If you know someone like that, I don't know, maybe death should not rob you of your hope. I know someone like that. Anybody else know someone like that? I know someone like that. His name's Jesus. Need Jesus. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. He's the resurrected one. And by the way, if you're a newbie, if you just kind of tiptoed in the doors, you're not yet a Christ follower. You got God questions. You're trying to figure out you now what makes Christianity unique, uh, what sets us apart from other world religions. And well, here's one thing. Uh, we, like other religions, believe in, in a living God. We believe in a living God. We worship a living God. But one thing that sets us apart, we believe in a dead God, too. A dead God. We're in the book of, book of Joshua. What number of book is that in your Bible? It's book, book number six. If you turn, I don't know, like 60 books, 60, 60 books to the right, you'd be in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus introduces himself. By the way, that's good manners. You know, that's why I do every time I stand before you, I say, hello, I'm David Hughes, one of the pastors of Church by the Glades. Why? Maybe we haven't met, so I want to introduce myself. Well, if we haven't seen each other for a long time, you don't recognize me. I want to introduce myself. Jesus does that in Revelation chapter one, because John, his earthly best friend, doesn't recognize him because Jesus is in his magnificent glorified state. 
And John's a little freaked out by that. So Jesus said, let me introduce myself. Look at the introduction, chapter 1, verse 17. Note the way Jesus self-defines. He says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Interesting. And was dead. He says, I'm the was dead God. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Okay, true enough, but... Uh... These are historical facts. What's the theological interpretation of these events? Is it so that Jesus can get you unstuck and give you divine momentum so your dreams don't die? That's not the biblical gospel. Amen. I love Jesus is not above amening himself. If you want to amen me, I might just amen myself, right? Was dead. He's saying, I'm alive. I'm alive forevermore. But John, don't forget, I also was dead. In fact, of the 12 disciples, the only one who stayed close to the cross, we know, John. He was there by his mom, by Jesus' mom, right? right? John was there. John, John saw him die. And when Jesus died on that cross, all John's hopes died. And John thought, game over, man, game over. Just cash in my chips, take a knee, game over. Might as well quit because death you know, crushes my hope and I have no momentum, so I'm going to quit. And three days later... Jesus beat death. I, I, I don't know what has died in your life. I don't know what. Jesus beat death. And now I, I don't know what, what has died in your life. So Jesus beat death so that you can beat the things that you can beat death to the things in your life. This isn't the biblical gospel. This is something completely different. What you've lost, what's been taken from it. Maybe, maybe your career has died. Maybe your relationship, your marriage has died. Maybe someone precious to you has died. And maybe, maybe, maybe you, you, you have no hope. But we serve and honor a God. We serve the was dead God. Jesus, this is great. Jesus faced death, hell, and the grave and just mocked them. He wants to breathe resurrection hope into you. I so Jesus wants to breathe resurrection hope into me. For what? That my dreams will be raised from the dead? Or that I will be raised from the dead on the last day? I honor and love the living was dead God. My goodness, don't bring a hopeless attitude in here. The Apostle Paul says, hey, there's three great things. Love's number one, but right up there charting with love is faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Turn your neighbor and say, you have some hope. You have some hope. You serve the was dead and now living God. Even death cannot rob you of your hope. So something in your life died. But somebody here has lost something or someone very precious. I'm not seeking to minimize that pain or that loss. But good night, Israel, who, if you recall, in their history had been stuck 400 years as slaves, then stuck for four decades wandering the wilderness. Why? Because the generation under Moses balked at the border of the promised land. They disbelieved and disobeyed God. So they wandered for 40 long years. That's pretty stuck. I mean, that, that's what you would just simply say. Man, that is, that is no big mo. Say it with me. That's no big mo. We got no big momentum. And then back to verse number one, verse number one, chapter one, it says, what's happening? Death. After the death of Moses. Oh, no. We got no big momentum. Now we have no big Moses. 
After death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, hey, did you notice? Did you notice that Moses is dead? So I guess the rest of the verse is going to continue. Give it up. Game over. Forget it. No, what's the first word in the rest of the verse? One, two, three. Now, listen, listen. God said, hey, I know Moses was awesome. Moses was Moses. Good night. Ten commandments. Moses. Rock in the Red Sea. Moses. Ten plays. Moses. Moses. Charlton Heston has to play him in the movie. Moses. I mean, well, Mo, well, Moses. And he's dead. Now. Now. Remember the word last week. The word last week. What was the tiny word last week? Was the word what? Thank you for the two people who remember last week. Future. Future. And I told you your future begins in about 15 seconds. Or now. So you've lost something or someone you love. Death. Death robs us in the human realm of hope. God says, guess what? Moses is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river. So you lost this thing. Now that's okay. God says, we're going to do it anyways. I know Moses was this wonderful, iconic, epic leader. But I don't need Moses to get this thing done in your life. Your time is now. Your time is now. Turn to your neighbor and say, your time is now. Turn to your neighbor and say, your time is now. Don't sit there being afraid, being hopeless, thinking my time will never come. Turn to your other, uh, neighbor, other side and say, your time is now. Let's cross this river now. Now, God wants you to have hope. I hope against hope. You got hope because you have no hope. You have no hope. God. Boy, this thing. <clears throat> Yeah, you, you know what this reminds me of is, um, well, <clears throat> Adventures in Missing the Point. Seriously, I mean, so God just wants you to have hope and hope because you know, he's got a hope for your future. You got to have resurrection power to raise those dead dreams and back to life again. Because if you have hope that those dead dreams will come back, then God will see that you're serious and he'll raise them for you. He'll give resurrection power to your dreams, to your finances, to whatever. Um, my dreams don't need to be raised from the dead. I'm the one who literally is going to die. I personally need to be raised from the dead. And everybody listening to David Hughes, they're all going to die too, for real. You know, like bodies falling apart, decaying. Uh, you'll be a skeleton within a few years, kind of dead. No breath, no life, assuming room temperature, biting the bullet, buying the farm. All of that stuff, we're all going to really die. And so apparently Jesus, oh, we we can clap, give Jesus a high five. Way to go, Jesus. Because you, you know, you really showed it to death, man. You, yeah, man, you let death have it. You, oh, man, way to go, Big J. Yeah. So now I can have resurrection power to raise my dreams from the dead. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, yeah. That's not the point of Jesus' death and resurrection at all. This is a false gospel. God wants you to have hope. We serve the resurrected one. Second idea. Someone's going, but David, you know, uh, that's, that's all good. Thank you so much for like the biblical pep talk. But, uh, uh, you know, my dream did die. My dream. I had this dream, man. And, and, and someone victimized me. And I lost my dream. Or I, I made, I made. 
My eyes are rolling out of my head at the moment. Hey, I'll just own. Oh, I made some stupid decisions and I forfeited my dream. And, and back when I had you mean sins, you committed sins for which you're going to stand before God and have to give an accounting, right? I had a dream. My dream was alive. I had, you know, I had a chance. I had a chance at momentum. But now my dream is dead. Okay. Your dream is dead. Good. Probably the best thing that ever happened to you. Your dream died. See, God doesn't say in this, we're in this book, he's going to make your dream come true. I don't know, know this, but I know this about your dream. Your dream compared to God's dream is way too small. In fact, my guess is your dream is, is too small. It's way too self-centered, probably very meistic. It's about you and your stuff and whatever. And God says, no, I, I'm not promising to give you your dream. I want to give you my dream. And again, you're probably highly intelligent. I mean, wow, you're, you're maybe, we're going to have like 5,000 people here this week. And even with just six services on this campus, 5,000 people here. And you might be the most intelligent person. You have the biggest brain, biggest IQ. You're the most creative. You make Walt Disney look dull. You are so creative. And you say, boy, I can imagine a big dream. I can conceive a big dream. Measure your intelligence against the cosmic genius of God. In fact, this is not a rhetorical question. Who's smarter, you or God? Answer would be God. So God says, I got a dream for you. By the way, we're still, um, this is supposedly a sermon series on the book of Joshua. We ain't learned nothing, nothing so far. We're two and a half sermons, well, we're one and a half sermons in, okay? this We've done one whole sermon, and now halfway through the second sermon on supposedly the book of Joshua, and we have learned hokum, we have learned squat uh, about the book of Joshua. In fact, David Hughes would have done better to just open the book and start reading. Then at least God's word would be allowed to speak on its own terms. But at this point, God's word is still muzzled. You know, Jesus is actually probably in the back of the stage somewhere with duct tape over his mouth and, you know, a big wad of newspaper stuck in in his mouth, too, so that he can't speak or say any words. They might trot him out and shake him around a little bit, say, look, we got Jesus, and then throw him back and gag him and tie him up again. But God's word is not speaking at this point. If God's word were speaking, then he would be reading it. He would have people looking at it, and he would be exegeting the text. He's not. This is like a magic show. This is a sleight of hand trick. For you. I got a dream for you. I got. Would you dare? Would you dare take your little tiny dream compared to my dream with my cosmic genius? Would you, would you dare? And by the way, God loves you more than you love yourself. David, how do you know God has a dream for me? Bible says so. Again, Jeremiah 29, 11, this is a- uh, No, Jeremiah 29, 11 was not written specifically to us. And no, that is not for you and for me. A great passage. It says in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, oh, that's the principle. I'm going to come back to that. Thank you. For I know the plans I have for you. God said, I got a plan for you. I got a plan for you. It's not a shooting star, an airplane. I got a plan. I'll reveal this plan. So that's what God has for you is divine direction, divine direction. God has a supernatural plan for your life. Now, here's the cool thing too. God is so creative. His plan for your life is unique. His plan for your life is different than his plan for my life. There's commonality, but it's scripted for you. It's customized for you. He's not a one size fits all God. 
So if you look, uh, can you give me some clear passages that talk about this big divine sized, custom made, not a one size fits all dream and plan that God has for my life? Where is that taught in the Bible again? Again, I'm looking for clear passages that can back up the assertions that you're making, David, because these assertions that you're making about God, I don't see them in the biblical passages at all. Looking for guidance, God says, good, I got a plan. I got a plan. Or the biblical word I love is the word vision. The word vision. God has a vision for his people. God has a vision for you. Uh, I love to share Proverbs 29, verse 18. I use that very language, very powerful language. Where there is no... The people do what? They, they perish. They die. They have no hope. They have no momentum. But, but God wants to give you vision. And, and think about that. So here the cosmic genius of the universe... Who where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. That's Proverbs 29, verse 18. It's not talking about you having a vision for your life or for your future. You know what? I think Pastor Charmley uh, wrote an email regarding this. Hang on a second here. <sighs> i got to sift through the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, pile of email that I have. Uh, Pastor Charmley writes regarding this, Dear Chris, oh dear, I, I just finished the Power of a Dream sermon and it was awful. Once again, someone doesn't understand what the word vision means in the Bible. Here's a sermon that I preached fairly recently on a text that includes the words, there was no open vision, uh, includes the correct use of the Proverbs passage, in other words, a proper vision sermon. We're going to have to play that sometime next week. Um, so, Stay tuned. I, I want to let you all that know that next week on Fighting for the Faith, I will be playing this sermon from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley regarding the proper understanding of the biblical term vision. Okay, and by the way, if you read the text in a good uh, in, in a good translation, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. We're talking about prophetic vision from God. Where, so where can we find prophetic vision from God today? Answer, the Bible. Yeah, that's all revealed oracles of God. Yeah, no kidding. Moving along. He knows the future with more clarity than you understand or perceive you right now. This God has this vision for your life. And by the way, he loves you more than you love yourself. And some of you guys love yourself a whole lot, but God loves you more than that. He says, I got this plan for your life, this vision for your life. And that should intrigue you. That should ex The text doesn't say that. And no, it's not intriguing. You're lying to these people. You are blaspheming the name of God and saying things about him that are not true. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. Cite you. You just go, you know, I, I want to know. I, I want to know what this vision is. David, David, how? Question, how do I find out what God's vision is for my life? That is a brilliant question. I'm glad you asked that question. Kind of. I, I bet there's something I have to do. I, I, it's, this is vision by works, not vision by grace. How do you discover God's vision? Let's, let's answer that question and then we're done today. How, how do I discover God's vision for my life. How will God unpack and unfold his vision for my life? Three things. A, B, C. Write these down. At least take a middle note. A, B, C. Say it with me. A, B, C. We sound like the Barney show right now. A, B, C. All right. A, B, C. Let me give you the A, B, C of how God will show it to you. A, how will God show his plan to my life? Number one, scripture. Scripture. The main way God reveals his vision for his people and for your life is this book. 
all the time. I tell you, hey, Church by the Glades is all about two things. People think we're about technologies or creativity or uh, building new buildings or, or TV. No, 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 no. Those are all great. They're secondary. We're about two main things. Jesus and his word. Say it with me. Jesus and his word. Okay. okay, if you were really about Jesus and his word, David, how come I'm not hearing God's word or Jesus's word being preached? I'm hearing a bunch of bunch of assertions that cannot be backed up from the clear passages in context by you. So you're not preaching Christ's word at all, at least not in the last sermon and a half. And, I mean, where's Jesus in this? If you're all about Jesus, shouldn't I be hearing something about him that's accurate? Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave were not just so that he can give us resurrection power so that he can resurrect our dead dreams. That's a lie. I don't know which Jesus you're shilling for here, but it ain't the biblical one. Let me just clarify right now, front end, we're all about Jesus and his word. We're a radically Christ-centric, biblically-based church. So every time you come to it... No, I, 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 I am absolutely convinced... If we were to bring you up on charges, okay, we're, we're gonna charge David Hughes and Church by the Glades of charges of being radically Christocentric and Bible focused or Bible whatever. That if we were to go to trial, they would say that you're not guilty of being Christocentric and you're not guilty of really being Bible centric at all. There is, there is no evidence that can convict you of being Christ centered teaching environment at this ministry we're going to teach the word of god because that's the way thank you when when this is a sermon series on the book of joshua when are you going to open up god's word and actually teach it one excited person there Woo! i'm right there with you thank you because we're all about this book so bring this book with you let's study this book together carefully because as you begin to study this book god will unfold his vision for your life oh so you you need to read the Bible so that God will unfold his vision for your life. Where does the Bible say that God will do that? It, I, I can't recall a single passage that says that. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some of you can email me those great passages that say that if I read the Bible that God will unfold his vision for my life. I mean... If I want to know what God's vision for my life is, I just got to hang around till tomorrow. I'm only given a day at a time. Oh, man. So we've not made it very far. We've been now almost two whole sessions together. We're through the first verse and a half of Joshua. Let's make a little progress. Later, in You have not been preaching on the, verse, the first verse and a half of Joshua. You've been doing anything but biblical preaching. In chapter 1, chapter 1, say verse 6, look at this commission that God gives to his young leader. He says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. That's the vision. Joshua, no more wandering, no more bondage, no more enslavement. It's time to take possession of the promised land. And Joshua, let's get personal, you will lead these people to take possession of my promise. Now, here's how you do it. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have success wherever you go. Get ready to read. Do not let this book of the... Thank you. I just want to highlight that quickly because 
you might be confused. What is this book of the law? Is this like a rule book or regulations? Isn't God like in the rules and legalism? No, no. Uh, in Hebrew, this is the word Torah. Oh, you recognize that. Torah is the name for the first five books in the Bible, the books of Moses. Torah means the law. And so what God is saying is, I want you to focus on the Bible. Because Joshua only had a little bitty Bible, right? He only had the first five books. They're writing the book of Joshua, number six, during his life. So you, you, you read and you study. In fact, go on. You memorize and meditate. Look, look what it says. This book of the law, the Bible, Joshua, don't let it depart from your mouth. Meditate on it. Memorize it. You know, think about it. Chew on it day and night that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Get ready. This is very exciting here. Then you will be prosperous. Oh, wait. I like that. I like it. Thank you. I went ahead. Prosperous is good. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Stop right there. Maybe you're not interested in this. Maybe you just want to say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I, I have all the... Notice uh, the if-then thing. So um, before you start preaching on prosperity there, David, um, keep in mind the if-then clauses. Yeah, every single transgressions of God's law, God doesn't grade on a curve. You either keep it or you don't keep it. The, and if you, when you read the New Testament, it's clear God gave the law to condemn us, to show us our need for a savior. So if you want to be, if you want to experience the prosperity promised by God's law, then you need to keep it perfectly. Good luck. Prosperity and success I can manage right now. I just have so much prosperity and success. I just, no, thank Dave, thank you, thank you. I don't, I don't need this one. Anybody? On the other hand, if someone's saying, you know, I don't want to be greedy or, you know, but yeah, yeah, I take a little more divine prosperity and divine success. I, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah, I want that. Put your hand there if you'd like a little more, a little more if you'd like. And seeing all the smart, intelligent people have their hands up. I want all the blessing heaven has. So here it says prosperous and successful. Let me define this. Successful in what? In accomplishing God's vision for your life. Prosperous has David... The text doesn't say that. David become a prosperity preacher? No. Except for the Bible teaches prosperity. It teaches prosperity right here. And, and, and the Hebrew word here is a fun word. It's the word shalik. Shalik. Say that with me. Shalik. One more time. Shalik. If you say it just right, you kind of spit a little bit in the hair of the person in front of you. Hit him in the back of that. Shalik. It means to be prosperous, or this is really cool. Remember, here's a people group who've had no big mo from his 500 years. No big mo. For yeah, that was their big problem. They didn't have any big mo. 400 years of slaves, no big mo, four decades wandering. They've been stuck, stuck, stuck. We have no sense of national momentum. Shalik means to break free or break out. But the key is the word of God. So Joshua, you got this little bitty Bible, man. Study this Bible and pray on this Bible and meditate on this Bible because I'll unpack my vision for my people and my vision for you as you study the scripture. So here's what I've noticed in life. Anytime I meet a Christian person who has no big mo, they are a stuck person. It's always in direct and proportional relationship to their unwillingness to study, read, and to apply the scripture. So if you hear whining that you're stuck, God, I'm stuck. God says, here's the book to get you unstuck. Begin to study and memorize and then do what it says. I'll reveal my vision, A through scripture, A through scripture. So what's the B? What's the B? Well, sometimes 
You have a directional question in your life and there's not a Bible verse for it. You know, there's, there's some issue. Maybe it's a big issue you're dealing with, but there's not a scripture that gives you defining clarity on that. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're a single brother, single brother and you, you're involved in the singles ministry here at Church by the Glades and there's two nice ladies you meet and you know, you're there for God first. You're there for God first. You're at the singles ministry for God. But the Bible says, you know, to watch and pray. So your eyes are open while you're in there. And, and here's this nice woman. Here's, here's Thelma. And here's Louise. And, and you think, Matt, I'd like to maybe spend some time, get to know, maybe court or date Thelma or Louise. God, which is it? Thelma or Louise? Is there a Bible verse? Thou shalt date Thelma, not Louise. No. No. So on these things... You need insight. What B is this. God will give you what I want to call the spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom. This is for a principle that's outside of the parameters of Scripture. God, do I, do I leave the corporate world and strike out on my own right now? God, this investment seems kind of appealing to me. But in this economic environment, I, I, you know, how, how do you get direction on that? The spirit of wisdom. The God will speak Christian person through his spirit and give you his discernment, give you his intelligence, his wisdom. Look as Joshua was introduced even before the book of Joshua at the way he's described. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. It's something about him discerning. It's godly. In fact, my own personal definition of wisdom, spiritual smarts, God's intelligence, especially when something outside of the clear teaching of the Bible. So I think as we navigate life, perhaps especially if you're a little stuck, man, wisdom is vital. So what was the big momentum barrier as the people came into the promised land? Answer, Jericho. Jericho, one of the famous stories of the Bible. Jericho, uh, scholars, one of the oldest... For there was no momentum barrier. What If there was a momentum barrier, what kept people out of the promised land for 40 years was their lack of faith. That's exactly what Jude said. Jericho was just the first stop on the conquest of the promised land, and God said he was the one to give them the city. Moment, uh, Jericho was not a momentum stopper. Fortified city-states in the history of the human family, famed for its massive walls. And Jericho literally is this. It's a barrier between God's people and God's promise. So those walls got to fall. They got to come down. The story is found in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, story of Jericho. So we're going to skip the first five chapters. With the exception of a few verses from chapter 1, we're now just jumping to Joshua chapter 6. Got it. And here's where kind of Joshua gets the plan. But I mean, they are a Bible teaching church. Plan of attack. The wise plan of attack for, for Jericho. Let me read a little bit of this with you. Ready here? Get ready to follow with me. Joshua chapter 6. Now we're making some progress in the book of Joshua chapter 6. It says, now Joshua, uh, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. The Lord, then the Lord said to Joshua, here's, here's the wisdom. See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Here's what you do, Joshua. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. And you read the rest of it. Remember the story? So here, take the army. You march around in, in a big circle. Go around a big circle around Jericho one time a day for six days in silence. And if you read the rest, Joshua says on the, on the seventh day, God says, here's what you do. March around the wall, wall seven times. On the seventh time, have all the priests, you know, blow their trumpets. Have all the people shout. And then know what's going to happen to the walls, Joshua? When the people do that, the walls are going to come. Uh... 
Interesting. Your response was almost uniform. Interesting the language you chose there. The walls would come a tumbling down. Why'd you choose those words? Why'd you choose those exact? You went to vacation Bible school back in the day. Or you went to Sunday school as a kid. Or or you went to Hebrew school and you learned that song. That song. Maybe you didn't learn the song, but a lot of you guys learned the song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a tumbling down. Now, here is one of, one of the dangers when you're exposed too much to an amazing biblical story. It's powerful truth might become cliche. Because some of you guys, you know the story of Jericho, and you go, well, of course, it's how you knock down the walls of Jericho. You walk around in circles. It's what you do. Now, see, listen, listen. This is important. Often as God unpacks his vision in your life, if you share this vision with unbelievers or even carnal Christians, they're going to think it's crazy. Hey, hey, this is, don't, don't spiritualize the story. Here's Josh. Josh was a young, untested leader. So he gets the plan from God, the wisdom of God of how to attack Jericho. Imagine he goes to the, the big meeting in his tent with the generals, his generals, right? They have a big table laid out. And back in, in Joshua chapter 2, they sent spies in, so they have some intel. Maybe they have a map and schematic drawn by the spies, what Jericho looks like. Here's the massive walls. And here's all these generals looking at Joshua. Here's his first time. First time he's been the commander-in-chief, and they're just waiting. Okay, he's going to tell us about the siege strategy. He's going to tell us about when we begin to construct the siege armament, the technologies, the battering rams, the scaffolding. I can't wait to hear this. So Joshua says, okay, here's what we do. Day one, we march in a circle. Day two, a second circle. Day three, four, five, and six. Okay, I want to point something out here. He's not really preaching the text. He's talking somewhat about the text. There's certain touchstones that are familiar here, but he's not really preaching the text. He's inserting a whole bunch of details that are not in the text at all and creating a narrative that is not found in the text. We march in circles in silence. Now they go, okay, this is good, this is good. What happens day seven? Day seven, the battering rams. Day seven, the armies attack the wall. What happens day seven? Day seven, we march in seven circles. Then the priests toot their horns. And then we all shout. And the walls will come. And some general's thinking, what has he been smoking in the wilderness? I, really, really. See, it's crazy, isn't it? It sounds kind of crazy to the undiscerning ears. It, it sounds, listen, a lot of things God's going to call you to do is going to sound kind of crazy. To an unbeliever, share the gospel. You, you fish for men. Here, you, rep, you risk your reputation. You put yourself in a position where people can label you and reject you. Go ahead. You first. You preach the gospel. I haven't heard you do it in two sermons yet. And when you did talk about Christ's death and resurrection, you completely lied about it and missed the point. For Jesus. Are you kidding me? That's crazy. Why would I do that? That's crazy. Uh, financial. Uh, tithe. Bring the first 10% to the storehouse of God and what God bless you. Tithe. You tell your unbelieving friend, man, in this terrible economy, I'm giving 10% off the top to my church. They're going to think you joined a cult. That's crazy. And I'm just honoring what God has told me to do. March around in circles. That's a crazy way to take down a wall. But it was God's word of wisdom to Joshua. Track with me, Bible scholars. Stay with me. Because we studied in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. Moses died. But God says, not a problem. I got Mo covered. You don't need Big Mo to have Big Mo. 
So now go cross the river. Chapter one, Joshua is commissioned. Be strong and courageous. Meditate on this book of the law. Chapter two, stay with me. The spies go into Jericho and do a little intel in the land. Chapter three follows chapter two. Chapter four follows chapter three. We're studying chapter six, Jericho. The chapter right before, immediately before chapter six would be chapter You guys did good. Five. And and I want you to read for homework the latter part of chapter five. Because where did Joshua come up with this crazy plan? Just marching in circles and tooting horns and shouting to take down a a mighty wall. Didn't make any... Where did he get the plan? Latter verses in chapter five. So Joshua, it's like the night before the big battle, perhaps. And and he's still intimidated. He's going, man, I'm looking at Jericho. And for generations, this city has been a, a, a barrier. This city has been these walls and we don't have the technologies, God. We don't have the manpower. How in the world this is my first time to really lead? How in the world? And the Bible says a being appears to Joshua there. He's called the captain of the host of the armies of the living Lord. He's a supernatural warrior with his sword in hand. When Joshua sees this, the supernatural being, Joshua freaks out and he grabs his weapon. Joshua says, are you, are you for us or for our enemies? And the captain says, neither. I like that. Neither. It's kind of like, hey, God, would you be on my side? God, would you kind of manipulate you, God, and get you to like do my little dream thing? And God says, no, no, no. I don't get on your side. You best be on my side. Neither. Neither. I'm the captain of the host of the armies of the living Lord. Now, now, who is this captain? Some scholars and theologians say, well, it must be an angel. It might be the angel Michael, some amazing angel. I think that's dead wrong. It's not an angel. Not an angel at all. Why? Because several times in the Bible, angels appear to people and angels are so awesome in their appearance. The people are tempted to fall down and worship the angel and bow down the angel. And every single time in the scripture that happens, the angel says, no, 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 no. Get off your feet. Don't worship me. Reserve worship for God. I'm a created being just like you. But the captain in Joshua chapter five allows worship. Joshua falls down and worship. No, the captain is, is Jesus. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. It's called a Christophany. Now, this, I, I'm, I, I agree that there's a lot of scholars who agree with him here. Is Jesus showing up before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Uh, another one in your Bible is the book of Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace, they're protected by God. But when that old pagan king looks in the furnace, sees them unharmed, he doesn't see three, he sees four. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, but the fourth one looks like the son of God. Bingo. So here Jesus gives a word of wisdom because there's nowhere in the first five books of the Bible it tells Joshua how to take down Jericho. But God says, here's the plan. Here's the plan. And by the way, there are no chapter breaks in the original text. So five flows right into six. So when God is speaking in chapter six, it's his captain saying, here's the wise plan to take down the city. People are going to think it's crazy, but I'm in it. What happens? Joshua does exactly what God says. So A, it's scripture. B, it's a spirit of wisdom. And final thought, and we're done. When you think about this A, scripture, and this B, a word of wisdom, A always trumps B. This comes first. The authoritative way we know God's opinion on any subject is scripture. And if anyone tells you something that contradicts with scripture, they're wrong. I don't care how they spiritualize it, how they prayed about it. I, I don't get wrong. Here's what happens in my world. I've met a bunch of people over the years who said things like this to me. Well, Pastor David, I know the Bible says blah, 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 but I have prayed about it and God's told me something else. I mean, I hear things like this. Cue sappy music. I know the Bible says 
says sex is special and sacred and reserved exclusively for marriage. But I love my boyfriend and we're shacked up right now. And I prayed about it. I think God's okay with the whole thing. Don't blame that one on God. God didn't say that to you. God didn't speak to you. Might have been the double bean burrito you had at Taco Bell speaking to you in the night. It wasn't God. It probably is your own selfishness and sin speaking to you. But that's not God. God will never contradict his word. I know what the Bible teaches about the tithe and generosity. But you know, God has told me that doesn't apply. Are you kidding me? Don't blame that on God. A always trumps B. God will never violate his own word. And if you do that, if you violate the word of God, you're the one who pays the price. What do you do? You cheat yourself from God's favor. You cheat yourself from God's momentum. Okay, this is works righteousness. When you violate God's law, you are sinning and transgressing against a holy God. The solution is not you trying harder so that you can earn God's blessing. The solution is to be forgiven by Christ shed blood on the cross. We got a problem here. Because God wants to take down a wall in your life. So I wish we had more time. I, I can't do the other two points. I can't even wrap this because it's so rich, it's so fat. Like, like scholars argue, well, why? Why did Joshua and the people have to march around six times? Why for six days they have to march around? And I read one guy said, oh, here's what it was. It was psychological warfare. It's trying to freak out the people of Jericho. It's trying to put fear in their hearts. Eh, wrong. Of course not. Of course not. That's just stupid. You don't need to call psychological fear when you're about to take down physical walls. I don't care if you're the bravest soldier in the world. When the walls come, crumble beneath you, you don't need to do Here's what's happening. Here's the reason why God called his people to walk around those walls in silence and circles for six days. It was six days to give the people of Jericho a chance to repent. It was six days to give them a chance to make a, a God decision. It was six days for them to like wave the white flag and say, look, look, we're packing our bags. So we recognize this is your land, not our land. And we're squatters and usurpers on the land God has given you. In fact, we want to worship your God. Six days to do that. But on the seventh day, that window had slammed shut. And, and historians say when an army surrounding a city would blow their horns, that was the indication the siege had begun. When those, police, those priests blasted their trumpet, it was God laying siege to the mighty walls of Jericho. And when God lays siege to the mighty walls, they come a-tumbling down. And there's a wall right now, a wall in your life. There's some momentum. Notice the allegorization here. Um, there's a wall in your life that's got to come down. Buster in your life right now. And God is... I think I hear a horn. I think I hear God blast no horn. I, I don't hear a horn. I hear a piano. I think because you're about to believe God and do what he says, and God's going to knock down that wall. So you're you're going to believe God and do what he says. So we're this is some kind of repentance. Where's the forgiveness of sins, David? We're to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes he builds massive walls for his church. Sometimes he takes walls down in your life. I want to see God move in your life. I want to see God turn on the big mo in your life. So you, so you better get busy and start obeying God so God can then see that you're serious so that he can turn the big mo on in your life. Believe God. Trust him in his word. And will you take the promise? Look, I, I, I don't want to play church my whole life. I want to see a movement of God during my lifetime. I want to see God do something. See, I, I want to see a movement of God. Now, it's not that I am absolutely dead in trespasses and sins. I've been nailed to the wall. I'm guilty and bankrupt before God. 
and terrified because I know I have earned his wrath. No, it's, I, you know, I really want to see something big happen in my life, and I want God to do it. So if that's going to happen, i got to show God that I'm serious, so I need to apply the, the two of the four things that I'm going to hear from Pastor David Hughes here so that God can give me momentum. Really? Something so big and so powerful. I, I want to be part of a Joshua generation. Where does God promise to raise a Joshua generation? Nowhere. That's not taught in the Bible. Anybody with me? Anybody saying, I, I want to do that? I, I want it. I don't. Well, all the people who are with him are deluded because that's not taught in Scripture. I don't want to have like a little religious corner of my life. I, I want to be righteously reckless. I want to be immersing my life in the Word of God, doing what God's... I'm passionate about His vision for my life. I, I want God to move. I want God to move in such a big way. So so Joshua 5 follows by Joshua 6, preceded by 4, preceded by 3. One's the commission. Chapter 2 is when the spies, the Hebrew spies, go to Jericho to check it out. You remember that story? The king of Jericho hears they're in town, sends soldiers looking for him. So if you're an out-of-town dude, you're trying to hide out in a new place, where do you go? The brothel. You know, a lot, a lot of sailors and stuff hanging out there, foreign people hanging out there, you know, shady characters hating, hanging out there. So they go to the house of Rahab, the prostitute, to hide. And Rahab hides the Hebrews. Why would she do that? She, she's, she's of Jericho. Why would she do that? Well, if you read Joshua 2, she says, here's where I'm hiding you guys. I recognize that God's given you this land. This is not our land. We're pretenders. This is, this is your land. This, this is your land. And, and then what she says is very cool. She says, and the king and the soldiers and everybody, our hearts are melting with fear. Now, read it. Joshua 2. Here's why. Here's why we're so fearful. We heard about the Red Sea. We heard about what God did to the Egyptians on your behalf in the Red Sea. The Red Sea, that was 40 years before. A generation. I would love God to move in our lifetime in such a way that 40 years from now, pagan non-discerning people are going good night did you see what god did in our community through church by the glades did you see what god did Did you see that this is all a pipe dream why aren't you preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and christ and him crucified for our sins and our physical death and resurrection i can't explain that move but something was happening supernatural i want that you want that big mo yeah, man, I remember that church by the glades about 40 years ago. They had they had that big mo thing going on there. Man, I can't explain it. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Maybe there is a God. Divine momentum. God wants to favor you. God wants to advance you. Amen? Father, there's somebody right now, and they... Uh... All right, we're done. That was part two of the domination sermon series on the book of Joshua. Noticed any problems with this expository preaching through the book of Joshua? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't. There was no expository preaching through the book of Joshua. Whole bunch of convoluted, out-of-context verses strung together and held together by assertions that are not even that are not even backed up by any clear passages in the Bible whatsoever. I heard people's itching ears being scratched and tickled by uh, things said by the pastor that aren't even true. I heard the gospel mangled in such a way that, that apparently Jesus is, you know, he conquered death in order to show you that he wants to give resurrection power in your life to your dreams. 
yeah, we got some big problems. Big problems, folks. And unfortunately, Church by the Glades and its approach to mangling God's word, it's not isolated. It's becoming more and more and more the norm of what people are hearing Sunday after Sunday at church. In other words, the people attending these churches are not on the narrow road or the narrow path to to Christ's kingdom, to heaven, to eternal life. They're still on the broad road to destruction because you can't teach sound biblical doctrine by teaching false doctrine as if it's true doctrine. You can't do it. It's not possible. You can't correctly teach God's word by mangling and twisting God's word and making it say things that it doesn't say. What we're hearing here is blasphemy. What we're hearing here is Pastor David Hughes taking God's name in vain. And the people there clapping and hooping and hollering and eating it all up because the God he's presenting sure does sound like a God they could really like. But that's not the God that's revealed in Scripture. The God that Hughes is preaching is an idol. He doesn't exist. He's a false god, figment of his imagination, created and constructed to scratch tickling ears and to comfort people when really what they need to hear is the uncomforting words of God's law and the thunders of Sinai pointed directly at them to let them know that they are wretched sinners and they have no hope of salvation, not by their law-keeping, not by applying principles, nothing that they are bankrupt spiritually and haven't got a snowball's chance in hell of avoiding hell, and that Christ and him crucified for their sins is their only hope. The forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. But that's not what they heard, and that's not what they're hearing. This Americanized, popularized, scratching-ear, seeker-driven, pabulum-driven methodology and message preaching to felt needs is not the biblical message. These methods have a theology that go with it, and the theology is not biblical. It's time for the church to rise up and say, no, enough is enough. These men are sending people to hell. We will no longer tolerate their their presence in our pulpits and in our churches and we're going to throw them out, and we're going to replace them with men who will do what God's Word commands pastors to do, and that's to preach the Word, Christ and Him crucified for our sins, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and to preach the Word in depth, the full counsel of the Word of God. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Uh, One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. My email address is um, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com 
or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.